The Northern Wine Odyssey series is a part of Cork Report Podcast Media. Check us out on Spotify, Google, or Apple Plus, and more. And don't forget to subscribe. My name is Paul Brady, and I'm a content contributor for Cork Report. And on this episode, I talk to my friend Amber Rill, who is the Assistant Beverage Director at Cork Buzz Wine Studio in Manhattan, New York, where she also oversees consumer and private wine classes. Cork Buzz is an amazing venue for wine education. And recently, Amber and I were both able to view a seminar on New York wines moderated by Kevin Zraeli, who is the author of the number one selling wine book in the world called Windows on the World. Kevin was also the sommelier at the restaurant Windows on the World at the World Trade Center in New York up until September 11th, 2001. And lucky for all, he was not there on that tragic day. Kevin is also a celebrated wine educator, having taught his classes to thousands in the New York City area throughout his career. So this is Amber and I shooting the shit on Christmas Eve of 2020, reflecting on Kevin's seminar, wine education, jobs in the wine education sphere, and New York wines. Welcome to the Northern Wine Odyssey Podcast. Thank you, as always, to guitarist and composer Dave Miller for the wonderful opening music. Check him out at DaveMillerGuitar.com or wherever you buy or stream music. Amber, happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. Merry Christmas, Paul. Thank you for inviting me to chat with you tonight. This is super fun. I couldn't be happier to be doing it on this particular day. Are you in New York City? I'm in New York City. I agree. What a treat to, um, you know, have an opportunity to spend a holiday with with friends um, this this year, particularly during this time. I am in New York. I'm at home in Fort Greene, um, and you know, I'll I'll be here all year, I guess, as it goes along. So <laughs> we're almost 2021 done with the year that is. <laughs> Thank you. We we can see it. We can see we see you 2021. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're looking um, forward to it. You, you've been busy. You have not stopped working whatsoever. Maybe you've been busier than you ever have. Tell me what work has been like for you since the pandemic started. Wow, thank you. Uh, well, it's been a completely different job and a totally different role than I um, you know, really sort of imagined for myself. We pretty quickly, um, really immediately within that first week after the, uh, you know, total shutdown in New York, um, that kind of starting in the March 20th something, uh, we really switched and pivoted to online retail, online education. Uh, we have a really great following of, of regulars, of students who would come into our online classes. And we were able to, one, offer wine classes online. We offered them very inexpensively. We charged $10 for a virtual class online. Um, and, and the whole reason for this was just, we just wanted to create that sense of community that wine is really about. And that was one of the biggest things. And we also said, you know, if you don't have $10 to spend on class, because especially within the wine community, within the restaurant industry in New York, it was 
such a scary time wondering what was going to happen. Um, still really scary now, but at least we have an idea of what is happening, kind of what the future looks like. But, you know, that first few months in March and April were were pretty terrifying. So uh, kind of really moved into this this virtual classes. And at the beginning, we were doing something like seven to nine classes a week. So we were doing classes every weekday, uh, sometimes once or twice on the weekend. And as we moved into the the summer months um, with the warmer weather and people feeling more comfortable going out and being outdoors, uh, we kind of scaled back on the classes. So we really engaged more in, um, instead of consumer classes, we started working with a lot of private events. So we were really happy pre-COVID, we did a lot of in-person events, especially for the holidays that included uh, dinners, tastings, education, which were always really fun. And we were able to offer a lot of those same the same events uh, to our guests in a virtual format. So that's kind of been uh, my life in this in this past, you know, 10 months or whatever it's been. It's just um, gone from that face-to-face interaction every day, really thinking about the hospitality uh, traveling, as you know, of course, within within the wine world, to um, to sitting at a computer and and still talking with people, still reaching people, still facilitating community, but in a totally totally different way. <laughs> but it's been amazing. Fun. Were you able to sneak away at all over the summer, at least to get out of New York City? So I, I was able to go upstate for a few days um, to the Catskills with my partner and his parents, we rented a home for about four days or so. Um, and that was in June. So it was still pretty early on. And the real purpose of that, so I, I'm in Fort Greene now, I moved over the summer, but I was living in Manhattan prior to that. So the whole point of getting out of um, the city was really to be outdoors without a mask. I was really like, I need the the opportunity, you know, I couldn't even like, you know, of course, couldn't even step out of our apartment really without a mask. And I was like, I just want to go outside <laughs> by myself and be comfortable. So we had a really lovely um, four days upstate during during uh, June, which was nice. I know. It's it, the silver lining, right? Everybody discovered what was right in their backyard this summer. Because what, what do we do as New Yorkers? Like, I've lived in New York 10 years, more than 10 years now. I've never been to the Statue of Liberty, right? I mean, we we I've never been to a Broadway show. Like, we just don't do the things that are sometimes right in front of us. I went to the Adirondacks for the first time this summer. And I know that so many other people who would otherwise jet set did the same thing. So in 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 that sense, I mean it, it was kind of cool that, you know, it sounds like you and 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 me and many others got to discover some of the natural beauty in upstate New York for the first time. I absolutely agree. I, when I moved to New York, um, so I've been here, I think, eight years, going on eight years. Um, and actually, this is so funny, I think it's worth mentioning on this podcast that, of course, like you were one of the very first people I met when I kind of accidentally moved to New York City through, of course, my mutual friend, Rian. Um, and I would just think of that relationship, like how you know, how fascinating the city of New York is that these relationships um, come to a, to a circle like this. It's so interesting. But um, when I first moved here, one of my great, great friends from Washington State had given me a book called 60 Hikes Within 60 Miles of New York. 
And this is the first time in eight years that I pulled that book out and we used it all summer long. It was absolutely fantastic. Okay, I I have a question for you. Was it this year in January that you and I were both in the Finger Lakes together? Oh my gosh, it was. That feels like that, that's insane. That feels that feels like eight years ago, doesn't it? I was I, I was <laughs> I was like, was that this year or last year? Because I did that trip, the Winter Cellar trip, when I was working for the Wine and Grape Foundation, two years. And it's always one of my favorite trips. And and as I was getting ready for this, I was like, I think it was this year, which is insane. I, I think back so fondly on that trip. That was such a great group of people. Um, it was a great and, group and, of people. And yeah. And we can talk a little bit about that as we get into the wine. So I want to come back and and touch on some of what you mentioned in terms of the, the classes that you've been offering via Cork Buzz digitally this year. But let's talk about Kevin's Rayleigh and this seminar that that we both saw. I, wine education is something that I think is really fun. I, I don't know anybody who works in wine who doesn't like to teach classes or write or produce content in, in you know any which way. And Windows on the World, the book, was actually the second wine book that I ever read cover to cover. So that was a pretty important one for me. What, did you did you pick that up at all in your formative days? Absolutely, a hundred percent. And I was, you know, flipping through it again too, just in the last few days and kind of preparation for this, and and just reminded the content is so rich uh, and so approachable. It just reminded about this incredible teaching style, and and I think as somebody that does, you're, you're absolutely right. We we it, we need an outlet. And people that understand wine, I think one of the most difficult things about learning and knowing about wine and then having to translate that is is managing that amount of knowledge and managing uh, the expectation of, of when to share it and what is too much and what is just enough, right? So, um, you know, kind of education gives us an outlet for one of those things. Um, and it gives us an opportunity for me. One of the important things, which I mentioned before, is just the idea of, of hospitality. Um, when we've lost that face-to-face hospitality in, in 2020, for those of us in the restaurant industry, you seek that through wine. And I think Kevin is the, the original kind of hospitalitarian educator, right? <laughs> like he comes yeah. from both sides of the table. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I got to be honest, like these, these zoom wine happenings, like there was a point where I just couldn't do another one. And whether as an observer or uh, involved on a panel or whatever, and I started saying no to them. And then when, when I got the email for that session, it sort of sparked my interest again. I don't know what it was. It was just, you know, too much Zoom, too much staring at screens. It was just kind of like contributing to the COVID fatigue or whatever. But that that one snapped me out of it a little bit. Um, and I'm and I'm glad that that you were that coincidentally we were both registered for that seminar so that we could talk about it today. I guess we should start by mentioning that uh, Kevin was late to the seminar because we got a huge snowfall in New York and he's not that far from me. I'm uh, in the Rhinebeck area in the Hudson Valley and Kevin lives over in New Paltz 
And apparently there was so much snow on the roof of his garage that the roof caved in. And I really hope he didn't have any car damage or anything like that. But I know that he had to deal with that, which is why he was a little bit late to the seminar. But when he showed up, man, he showed up. Yeah. I, I mean, thought it just was amazing. Like, yeah. Pro just took over. So charismatic, you know, even in his like slightly anxious way, because I mean, he was obviously just dealing with his broken roof and, you know, right, right into the wines. And, you know, it, it's just, that's a great lesson in when you are in front of an audience, you know, just, just keep going, you know, there's going to be hiccups and teaching. I don't think it needs to be intimidating or any sort of, you know, public speaking or teaching, whatever it is, I think that it can be learned. And, and this is a great person to sort of imitate to, to get some pointers and to find a style. So, okay. So let's, um, let's talk about some of these wines. And I don't know if you have notes. I have, I have a, a few things that I want to touch on that he mentioned throughout, uh, throughout tasting these wines. Let's for the, just for no reason, really, let's start with the Finger Lakes. So I don't know if you have, I have, there were two wines from the Finger Lakes in the center, uh, in the seminar, but in front of me right now, I have the Riesling from Cuca Lake Vineyards. Do you have that one? I have it and it's singing right now. I let this one actually warm up a little bit. I tasted it a few hours ago and, um, and I was thinking, you know, I'm right out of the fridge and I was thinking it was just a little bit too warm. So I've kind of actually let it sit out for the past few hours and it's just like beautiful at the moment. Did we go there together or were you in a different, were you at a different uh, No, I, yeah, I was in a different, in a different group. I did not visit um, Cayuca Lake. I have visited Fjord, which we'll talk about a bit later on, on another wine trip with you. Um, yeah. One must <laughs> did have you, been wait, did you come to Long Island with me too? I, that, one, that one I missed. I didn't make it to okay. Long Island. With you, you, you had two of the three. <laughs> yeah. I like to call it the triple crown. Brooks Frazier, she uh, she did all three. She gets, she gets the triple crown. Fantastic. Um, okay, so this is a pretty cool vineyard. I, I have walked through this vineyard with Mel, the owner um, and sort of primary overseer of the grape growing. And it is one of the few vineyards, maybe not few, but it's – the Finger Lakes, where these vineyards are and how they're situated, it's not quite like Germany along the Mosul. I mean, there are some sites that have some steepness that go down to these lakes. And this is one of them. It really, I mean, and that's why it's called Falling Man Vineyard, because it it is a very steep slope. Definitely tough to do any sort of mechanical harvesting or anything like that. I'm nearly positive all the work is done by hand here. And these are these are good sites, and Cuca Lake Vineyards also has some some old sites that were planted and overseen by Charles Fournier, who was one of the famous French uh, grape growers and, and winemakers who came over from the Champagne region back in the middle part of the 20th century. And so Cuca Lake has some of those vineyards now, and there has always been something unique about the wines that come from these sites. And I've talked to winemakers who have worked there and I've talked to other winemakers in the area as to what it is that makes the Rieslings in particular stand out. And they always just come back 
with it's not really winemaking. It's not even really like farming practices, even though their their farming game is tight. It's uniqueness of sight. And there's other areas in the Finger Lakes where we can talk about that too. It's, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's it's not exactly a young region, but it's not an old region either. And viticulture is still super interesting in terms of how it's developing. And something that I think is probably a, a, a rule of thumb is we're not quite in a place yet where we can say, oh, the best way to farm is, you know, this way, or that's not a good way to farm. I've been told that we're not quite there yet. I mean, obviously you want to farm these grapes as responsibly as possible, but whether it's, you know, practicing organic, sustainable, conventional, uniqueness of sight tends to trump everything else still at this time. And I don't know if you agree with me or not, but I think this is one of those Rieslings that just sort of sticks out in a crowd. Would you agree? I I, can t- I totally agree that this sticks out. I also think not only does it stick out, but um, you know, this is actually a wine that we have carried. We've served it by the glass at Corkbuds before. Uh, maybe the previous vintage, I can't remember uh, which one it was, but you know, we've had, and we've actually have, we actually do have this wine as well, just in our cellar at Corkbuds, not by the glass. I mean, obviously, right now we're not open, but um, it, it also has a distinctiveness, and I think that that's really important. Is that um, you know, if, if you taste Rieslings coming from the Finger Lakes a lot, um, if you're very familiar with it, I think that you would uh, pretty easily probably be able to pick to, to pick this up. Um, you know, and there's kind of we talk about like farming practices and things like that. One of the things I love about wine is that uh, you know I would like to say like there's not really only one right way to do things, and I think often I, I something I kind of had to struggle to overcome for myself and like you know in in a place like New York where we get every wine and we get every wine seminar and we get every opinion on wine um to kind of begin to understand that like wow you can you know both these might be different ways but maybe they're both right or within the spectrum of what they're doing or where they are or what grapes they particularly have um but I think what you can say about this wine is like whatever they're doing they are definitely getting it right because I just like I had I just tasted this wine, you know. How long have I been talking now, Paul? Like a minute. <laughs> like the flavor <laughs> of this wine and the the structure and the intensity is like I just sipped it. You know, it it doesn't even feel like I've really been talking to you because it's still the intensity on my palate is is still so prevalent. It's really it's really something that's quite amazing in terms of like the flavor and the longevity of the structure. Yeah, and I think it's worth mentioning, this is a 2017 vintage. That was a pretty okay year. It it started off quite rainy, and luckily, when September came around, all of a sudden, it was just like sunny and 70 degrees every day. So the harvest really finished finished on a sunny note, was uh, also quite a high yield. So a lot of Riesling was produced that year in particular. So I'm not surprised that this is uh, quite possibly the current vintage Riesling for uh, the Falling Man label for Cuca Lake Vineyards. Um, Kevin sort of in the seminar w- was of the opinion that like, yeah, I mean, Finger Lakes Riesling, we, we, we got it. We know it. The world knows it. And I, I sort of 
thought that he was a little bit more excited to talk about some of these red wines. So I want to move on and talk about, in particular, the Syrah from Arrowwood. And and he's right. I mean, he, he's been doing this for 50 years now, and he got started working in the Hudson Valley. And there were, there were no red wines made from vinifera grapes when he started doing this. So it was kind of cool to just see him taste these wines and, and get that history um, in terms of how much the industry has grown and changed since he started. So let's, uh, do you have the, the Arrowwood Syrah? I've got it. Also 2017. So we're, we're up in the Niagara Escarpment now. So we're on the, they're on the New York side, obviously, of the Niagara Escarpment. It gets a little bit confusing because there is, of course, a wine region on the Canadian side, which is typically referred to as the Niagara Peninsula. But the Niagara Escarpment is essentially a giant sheet of limestone that, if I'm not mistaken, starts all the way up in Wisconsin and sort of goes across the Great Lakes and all the way through Canada, across the Niagara Peninsula and into the northern part of western New York and even touches on the the northern part of the Finger Lakes. And I've, I've heard so that this, too. So, so this is Syrah from New York from limestone soils, which I think is pretty cool that we've got an example of Syrah from limestone. And Kevin mentioned this when he started in the 70s, you would not have seen any Syrah. And there was a conversation about climate change, whether or not climate change has anything to do with the fact that there is Syrah growing in that part of New York, or maybe just the growing practices have gotten that much better. But either way, um, what are you? What are your thoughts on this wine? Uh, I, I have many thoughts. I have many thoughts. Actually, there's something else I want to say too. Is um, you know bringing up uh, Kevin's sort of demeanor, and and you're you're absolutely right. Um, he was really excited about the reds. Uh, one thing that you know you mentioned, he came onto this call after his roof collapsed. He was uh, so concerned with how everybody else was doing. During this, he came in and he was like, how is everybody doing okay? Have you been able to go ahead and taste the first wine? We were talking about the Cape Lake Riesling to begin with. Um, and you're right. He really did have this excitement for these red wines. And I really appreciated that he he facilitated this really interesting to me. I think this is really where, like, you know, the New York Wine and Grape Foundation, I've been to a few of these seminars. You're talking about, like, kind of the Zoom fatigue with these classes. Where I think that they've really excelled is they're they're choosing educators like Kevin who facilitate almost this like um, education through conversation, right? So Kevin is one of the best leading wine educators in the entire world that you kind of mentioned. Um, he wasn't educating at us, right? He was facilitating this really fascinating conversation about, they did talk about climate change. We did talk about um, the change of, of practices about the planting of different grape varieties in these particular areas. Um, and I thought that that was just really cool that he, one, always asked everybody else's opinion, like what did they think about these particular wines? Um, and as we move into the Syrah, like, I mean, I've got to tell you, I was stoked when I opened this box of wines and saw this. One, I really like 
Arrowhead. I've had, um, you know, quite a few of their Pinot Noir. They've tasted those Arrowhead Spring Vineyards coming from Arrowhead, the, that right. area. I think I, I, think I said um, Arrowwood earlier. Sorry, oh, Robin oh. and Duncan. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, that's the fun of live live education, right? <laughs> Everything's in there. So, um, you know, I, I was really excited about this because I don't taste very much New York Syrah. I've had I think the only one I can really think of having is, you know, Element. There's yeah, there's not a lot. Like, I mean, there's yeah. there's something like, I want to say there's something like, oh, maybe as little as 10 acres in the whole state. Um, I would probably that. a little more, but that that's, there is not a lot. There's a, a bit more on Long Island and, and then, yeah, some sparse plantings um, throughout the Finger Lakes. But yeah, I really, I think that Robin Ross, who was the vineyard manager at Arrowhead Spring, is super talented. Uh, have you ever met her or heard her speak? I don't know that I have. She's really good in, in seminars and things like that. Um, and every time I taste one of their wines, the, the thing that I kind of, you know, with, with all due respect to her husband, Duncan, who is the winemaker, I really think of these as, these are grower wines. These are vineyard wines. Like I think of the vineyard. I think of her growing practices, which I've I've heard her speak on. And the other thing I can say about, I, I in particular, I like the Pinot Noir. Did, I think we've tasted that together at yeah. some, some somewhere, maybe at Cork Buzz. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like that wine, and I, I like most of their wines. And and you always just taste the quality of the fruit. Like even if so, like I'll go ahead and say that this wine in particular. There's a little, there's a touch too much oak for what I love to drink. But I will tell you that consumers absolutely love these wines because I've poured that. I poured a couple of of the Arrowhead wines at the last Wine on Wheels last year in 2019. Mm-hmm. Were you there at City Winery? Uh, I was in, it was there in 2019, yes. Okay, yeah. So we had, we had one, uh, one, of their red wines. I want to say it was like one of their uh, Bordeaux style blends and they are very, very popular. So when I say that there's a touch, I don't even want to say that there's too much Oak. There's just that amount of Oak that is fashionable and that people love. And I decanted this wine and the Oak is actually already blown off a little bit. And it's just sort of now showing itself as more texture. And I'm, I, I'm, aromatically getting a little bit more herbalness and there's certainly structure and acidity and tannin and all that. And I'm really curious as to how this is going to taste tomorrow. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that that's a really fun, um, a really fun sort of observation to taste these wines at different points over, over a couple of days. Uh, I agree with you. You know, I think it's for, for us when we spend so much time tasting and, and so much time analyzing these different flavors and understanding you know, exactly where they come from. But I can see, you know, at a consumer standpoint, um, the, the, the flavor of oak is so recognizable and um, that's desirable, I think, in wine. When people are attempting to learn about what their particular palate enjoys, um, when they're trying to learn about, you know, what these flavors that they know that they've tasted or they've smelled these things before, but they can't quite um, you know, put it into into thought. You can't quite picture what that fruit is in your mind. You know, it's like really hard to, if you've never 
you're not used to smelling a strawberry without seeing a strawberry in front of you, right? So I think oak is one of those um, things that becomes so familiar that it it engages people to think about wine. And I think for this wine, it's it's definitely noticeable, but it's this wine has an affinity for oak. I, I wonder if it didn't have it, if it would have that kind of really beautiful finish. It's sort of like that allspice, that kind of star anise characteristic that's really nice on the end. Uh, when I drink there more there should be because it's it's a really cool opportunity to to taste something like this and and to see that something like this can actually be made in new york state it's pretty cool yeah i mean it is i think it does bear you know mentioning again that we're we're tasting new york syrah this is barely a category and i think that this wine definitely speaks syrah absolutely Cool. Okay. Let's, so we've, 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 we've done Western New York. We've talked Finger Lakes. We've talked Niagara Escarpment. Let's talk about the Fjord Cabernet Franc from the Hudson Valley. And these grapes are grown in the Marlboro area. And you and I were there together. We were. Right? Let's see. So that, I want to say that that was like my first year on that job. So fall of 2018. So, okay, this is a 2019 Cabernet Franc. So Matt Spaccarelli, who is both the winemaker and the vineyard manager. And I got to say, Matt, for me these days, is really one of the true, like, vignerons. Someone who 100% is in charge of all the winemaking and the grape growing, which is, which is kind of rare in, in New York and maybe even just um in the u.s here it's oftentimes those are different jobs and i i don't know how he does it i mean he's also got a family uh he's making the wine for two different wineries he's managing a lot of vineyards in the region and and just making a-list wines so i think fjord if i remember definitely made an impact on you because shortly after that trip, you, you guys bought some of their wines for Corpus, We absolutely right? did. We've done both the, um, the Alborino and the Cabernet Franc by the glass. So Kevin mentioned something about this Cabernet Franc that I want to touch on, which is that it reminded him of Beaujolais. And I definitely think that he's right. And, and then Kelby Russell, who was, uh, who is the winemaker at Red Newt and for his own label, um, Kelby James Russell Wines, he jumped in and basically corroborated saying, absolutely, I've been noticing that and really thinking about making Cap Franc for a number of years now as if it is Gamay or Beaujolais. And there is something just totally similar about New York Cap Franc when it's made in that light style to Gamay and Beaujolais, but without sacrificing the identity of Cabernet Franc. I actually agree? completely agree with that. Um, and I'm, I'm sure you're going to mention this later on, is that Cab Franc was a really kind of important topic within the the seminar that we did watch with Kevin. Um, you know, it's, it's the versatility across the state, uh, the willingness of the winemaker to experiment for good and, for good and bad. You know, I've, I've really never seen so many winemakers in a state take on a grape and say like, Sometimes I'm going to experiment this, experiment with this to see what happens, even if I know it's not going to turn out well, because I want to know, because we want to know 
what we can do, how far we can push the boundaries. And, you know, something I, I don't think, I hope I didn't say this already, but, you know, it's, it's in the last like four or five years, you know, every year I keep being like, when people ask me about New York wines, and they do quite often in classes, you know, they say, well, what do you think about New York wines? And I always say, well, I think that New York wines are the best they've ever been. And it's so awesome to be able to say that, like every year, that like, they're even better than they were the last year. And Cabernet Franc um, is really starting to sing in these different expressions that you're seeing within the different regions of the state. I mean, I don't know, you would probably know better, Paul, but I think Cabernet Franc is really the grape that like transcends all of these New York regions. Um, I know that, of course, you know, Chardonnay is planted most places, but I think Cabernet Franc is really the one that you see in most regions, right? Yeah, Chardonnay too, you're right. Chardonnay and Cabernet Franc are ubiquitous throughout the state in all the major regions where they grow vinifera grapes. I hope someday that it happens for Chardonnay in New York. I think the the issue there is consumers are so fixated on French Chardonnay or California Chardonnay. Like I you know, I I don't know if I know Oregon Chardonnay is is fashionable and popular and really mm-hmm. good, but I like I remember when I was working at Temple Court and I wanted to put a Long Island Chardonnay by the glass because we always had two Chardonnays there. There was always a white Burgundy, which was kind of a pricey by the glass pour. It was always like in the twenty dollar twenty plus dollar range for a glass, and then there was always a California Chardonnay, right? So you know we're talking like some oak and some ripeness on the California Chardonnay, whatever it was at the time. And then, you know, the counter part to that, a white burgundy. And, you know, I, I asked, I said, there are beautiful ripe expressions with oak of Chardonnay from Long Island. And we were working with Long Island wines, um, you know, in different places on the list there, but they would not deviate from California or Burgundy. What's your experience? Um, pouring Chardonnay or working with Chardonnay at, at Cork Buzz. And have you guys ever had a New York Chardonnay by the glass? We, uh, yes, we have. We've done Fox Run. Um, we did Fox Run for a short period of time. We did. And when I say a short period of time, it's not because we're like, oh, this isn't doing well. It's just, you know, we have a habit of buying sometimes one or two cases and then, you know, showcasing something else. So that's kind of like part of the identity of our program. Um, is that, and then part of the other identity, of course, is that we really have always, um, you know, made sure to have at least two New York wines by the glass prior to the pandemic. When we were open, you know, before the most recent shutdown, um, we had to scale that back a little bit. Of course, we scaled back our entire BTG, BTG program from, I mean, I think we had around 70 wines by the glass prior to that with all fortified sparkling, you know, everything, um, and to about you know, 15. So um, obviously there was a big change there, but we've done Macari uh, Chardonnay by the glass before. We've done Sox Run by the glass before. We've done Element actually by the glass before. If you remember, you came with uh, Chris and we did uh, the Element wine tasting. So we had um, a flight of, yeah. of three of his wines and then we did all three of those also by the glass for that, that week or that couple of weeks as well. Um, I think the interesting, you know, Chardonnay, Chardonnay has a stigma no matter where it's from. Um, that It's one of those wines that, uh, you know, people have just sort of got, gotten, it, gotten an idea 
in their head about it. And it's sometimes it's, you know, you can't, it's unwaverable. Like you cannot change their mind um, for anything about what Chardonnay is for them, right? So, I mean, that's part of our job as educators is to hopefully surprise people with um, with what really can be with some of these grape varieties. Uh, so I, I think that if people, one of the great things, and I don't mean to like take your podcast and talk about cork buds, but one of the things that I think people really trust cork buds for is you know, we have a lot of classic wines. We understand the classic regions. And so they really trust us when they're kind of ready to try to make that next step, to try that new thing. Well, I do like Chardonnay. I'm kind of nervous about tasting New York wine, but if you have this, then we'll trust you. Um, and I think that that's really kind of a, a fun opportunity that we have. Um, and I, anybody that's willing to take a few minutes and, and talk to somebody about wine, I think, learn something and hopefully taste something that might surprise them and make them think differently about that, maybe that wine, that region or that grape in the future. Yeah. I, I think uh, there's a, there's an opportunity in the future for New York Chardonnay to really sort of be like an, like an East coast table white wine, um, you know, not just in New York, but, but throughout the region. So, okay. That, that's, that's very good to hear. Um, that that you guys had some success with New York Chardonnay by the glass. Cabernet Franc seems unstoppable in terms of the momentum it has right now. I mean, when I get emails from friends and people I know and that are sommeliers in places like London and Toronto and San Francisco, it's always, how do I get my hands on New York Cabernet Franc? What do you think? I, I have my ideas, but what do you think it it is right now that has sort of catapulted the interest in Cabernet Franc from New York? I, I mean, I think it's, you know, like anything in wine, like there's no, there's no yes or no, there's no exact right or wrong. Um, so it's, you know, all of these things, we, we think of these kind of like catalysts that happen in wine, you know, like the 1976 Judgment of Paris, that was the catalyst for American wine. Well, like, of course it was, it was a really big, important um, event that happened, but like obviously all these other pieces had to be in place first. And I think that's kind of what's happening with New York is, you know, the, the quality is incredible. We have um, a, a nation of people that are becoming more and more interested in wine. Uh, in this past year, one thing that we've really tried to tell people is like, you know, travel in New York, like go to Long Island, go to the Finger Lake, you know, take a train to the Hudson Valley. You can visit some of these fantastic places. Um, I think there's an interest in that that interest in that idea of um, you know eating local produce of um, you know kind of the the idea of, of working within your food system that's around you is finally beginning to really transcribe into wine into what people are drinking and then also just the the idea that people are interested in this this kind of like fresh style and with all of these red wines like they're all really different that we're tasting today but they're they all have this this like kind of freshness to them right like uh, acidity even though they're red wines is uh, uh, something to comment for every single one of these so i think it's really just a, just wonderful you know collaboration of all of the all of these different things and then also you have the camaraderie of all of these winemakers in new york state which we saw on this particular webinar that we watched as well it's like they were having a conversation with each other they're uplifting and supporting the entire community knowing that when you know when one of them 
succeeds, it's a success for all. So I think like, I mean, we could probably continue to add on to that conversation. And I know that you will, but there's just so many factors that are all coming into play at the right time. Well, and I want to touch on, on something else that Kevin mentioned. I mean, he did, he, he made the comparison to Beaujolais. And I think that that is for me, very, a very useful tool to make benchmark comparisons because I, I I think back to you know when around the time when we would have met when I was working at Terroir Wine Bar and so that's back in like 2012 so we're coming off of some very good vintages in France with 09 and 10 and we're seeing the prices of Burgundy and Bordeaux just go through the roof so what does the industry do we look to other places as alternatives. And and around then, Loire Valley Cabernet Franc started to show up in everyone's programs with more, just with more luster. You know what I mean? So I do think that the herbalness and that greenness of Cabernet Franc, which is, you know, which are attractive uh, character notes, is a little bit more, you know, in the heads and on the palates uh, of people in terms of what they understand and, and how to drink these days. So I do think that even though Kevin made the comparison to Beaujolais, these old world benchmark comparisons, I find are still very useful when we're talking about new world wines, although winemakers do not like that. I, you know, I've spent a good amount of time around New York winemakers. And if you're, whether you're out on Long Island and you make a, you know, a Bordeaux comparison, or if you're up in the Finger Lakes and you make a a Germany comparison for Riesling or whatever, the winemakers tend to be a little bit put off by that. And they, they just want to say, um, you know what? No, these are, these are New York wines. And I kind of want to just be like, chill out a little bit. These, these benchmark comparisons are helpful. People in the trade use them to sell your wines. Would, do you agree? I, Disagree? I 100% agree with, with that. Yeah, do you yeah, do that? You know, absolutely, because it's really hard. You, you have to make um, these comparisons to sell people wine, and, and you have to make comparisons in education uh, constantly and consistently, and you have to kind of, you know, one of the things, I think one of the hardest things about um, virtual education now is you don't have that face-to-face interaction of like reading the guests, of reading the room, right? Like it's, 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 uh, it's much harder, honestly, to like sit at a screen and, and talk and hope that people are interested in what you're having to say, right? Because you don't really have that. Is somebody yawning? Are people going through their wine too quickly because they're not interested in what you're saying? Um, so it's one of the kind of the really interesting things, but you, you really need those comparisons. But at the same time, I, I also think it's okay to follow that up with um, why you might, you know, maybe the, the right answer is like you, you, you bridge that comparison, but then you think about what makes New York different or what makes New York special. And I think it's okay too, to kind of have that understanding of like, you know, New York winemakers for the most part don't think that they're going to make wine like Germany or like Bordeaux or like the Loire Valley, right? Like the whole idea is like you can look to some of the benchmark regions for inspiration, um, but we kind of understand that 
like if you're looking for a terroir driven product, you're not going to replicate the terroir of those benchmark regions in France. So, I mean, I think, yeah, for sure, we need to make those associations. Um, but then maybe it's up to us. It's like the educators, like how do we then leave the consumer? Um, how do we leave that student with the idea or the impression about what really sets these wines apart and makes them different? Which now I'm thinking about, I'm like, okay, like how, how will I do this in my next class about New York wines? Well, and, and they are different. You're right. But yeah, I think we agree. Winemakers don't be so sensitive. <laughs> we're, we're, we're trying we're to sell, help. We're you. selling your wine. We, we've got you. Yeah. Okay. I want to, I want to get into this, uh, the McCary Bergen road from the North Fork of Long Island. This is a wine I know pretty well. Uh, were you familiar with this? So with this actually, one? I was actually really surprised by this because I was not familiar with the, the Bergen Road. I am pretty familiar with the Macari wines, of course. I know the Dosagras. We've had that at Corkbuds quite a bit. Um, the Pinot Meunier, there's Sparklings, there's Chardonnay. Um, but this one was, was actually new to me. I uh, can't remember. I visited them, I mean, I would say maybe like three or four years ago. Uh, out on Long Island at their tasting room, but I didn't remember trying this particular one before. So this was this was a treat for me. Yeah, I think it's kind of their flagship red wine. I, I've been lucky to taste this with like ten plus years of age on it, and I don't. You, no, you you were not at that. I think your colleague Ryan yes. Topman was at that library Long Island red wines lunch that we did a couple of years ago. Um, and it's definitely always one of the stunners when you when you are able to taste it with that kind of age on it. And they they touched on that a little bit in in the seminar. I mean, Kevin even mentioned, you know, this is, you know, you're not like slaying a unicorn if you were to open the current vintage, which was 2015, still five plus five years of bottle age, but you know, he he definitely mentioned that better better to sit on that for a while. And I can wholeheartedly attest that Long Island Red Wines age, and that one in particular, really right up there with the heavies of Napa or Bordeaux. Um, what are your uh, thoughts? I love what Gabriella said about her, um, you know, again, that's why I love these seminars, you know, just in passing of what she's talking about, how a few days prior to the the webinar, she was talking to Louisa Hargrave and, and she was kind of like, you know, retelling the story about how they, the Hargrave spent all of this time looking around the United States for a place to make these wines that they really wanted to enjoy. They liked drinking this kind of idea of fine wine with the ability to age and ended up settling on Long Island. And we're really, I, I, I believe you would be probably, you correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but the kind of they were the catalyst. They were sort of the starters of the vinifera movement um, on Long Island in the seventies, and the yeah. Hargraves, yeah. And so I think that that was a, a, a kind of a really cool thing that she talked about. And one of the other things that I loved is that she touched on the fact, which is it's so incredibly thoughtful, and um, for a wine region that is young, like you know, you said it's not really old, it's not really young, and that's definitely true. There's a long history of grape growing and winemaking in New York State. Um, and Kevin mentions, of course, I love that he had that 
that book, what was the name of the book? He had this, this book from like the 1960s um, on United States wine. And it's like page 12. He talks about the idea that the, the you know, the first commercial winery opened in New York um, in this year. And it kind of touches on all that, that a really interesting um, conversation. And, but in this younger wine region, there's not a lot of opportunity for everybody to hold back their wines, right? Like we don't have these deep cellars and chalk like we have in Europe. Um, we have a lot more overhead costs in running a new world winery because we haven't owned the land and the equipment for, you know, generations within these particular families. Um, but I thought it was so thoughtful that she talked about the other vintage that they have of this particular wine, which was the 2010 that when they tasted the 2010 and the 2015, they thought that the 2010 actually needed to be held back longer. So where it's like, I mean, I think that that would be crazy. That would be unheard of in somewhere like California, where a winemaker would taste with their wines and be like, we're going to hold this at the property. We already spent all of the money making this wine and everything, but we're going to keep it here at the property for a little bit longer because we really want the consumer to have the best experience that they can have with these wines. So they released the one that they thought was more approachable to start with, even though it was a younger wine than the 2010, kind of with that caveat, like this is drinkable now. I'm drinking it as we're talking. I think it's, um, I, I love the, the warmth of this particular wine. Uh, it hits every spot on your palate. It really does. It has um, these kind of beautiful, uh, almost slightly liqueur type flavors to it because the intensity is so much. It has uh, almost a little bit of this, I want to say like kind of like pine, like Douglas fir. I do have a Christmas tree in my home, but I'm pretty sure that's actually coming from the wine with this like really kind of beautiful juniper <laughs> green characteristic that you do get in this. Um, but I think, yeah, these wines can probably go on forever. Uh, not forever, but for a considerably yeah, long well, time. I've, I've had the, I've had that, the 10 that, that Gabriella mentioned and she's right. It, it, it just has a lot of backbone and is very much still on the upside of its life. Did you see any of Paul Greco's Instagram live stuff over the summer? Not, you know, a little bit here and there, but unfortunately not too much. It's kind of funny, like earlier when you were like, oh, I got so zoomed out. I was, you know, I to be honest, I was so busy and we, I was teaching so many of my own classes, consumer classes and private event classes. Um, over Zoom that I, I really didn't partake in a lot of the um, the, the New York wine circle uh, seminars that were taking place that have been I know absolutely wonderful that all of this is is possible. Um, so I, I know that he was doing a lot of those that uh, kind of crazy in the bunker fun thing. Yeah, and I, and I <laughs> you might you might go back and watch some <laughs> of those. Um, so there there was one in particular and. Sorry, my phone uh, via my computer just started ringing. Um, there was one in particular where I like, I mean, Paul's been obviously working as a wine director in New York City for like decades now. And somehow he pulls out, I don't, I don't remember if it was 78 or 79, but it was one of those two vintages, Cabernet Sauvignon from the North Fork from the Hargrave Vineyard. And First of all, I'm watching this and I'm like, how did you even get that? And, and it was probably something that was given to him a long time ago that he just, in in Paul Greco fashion, never got to. 
and, and somehow managed to still be in his cellar. And he went absolutely nuts about the wine. And it was a Cabernet Sauvignon at that from either 78 or 79. And he, he literally just loved the wine. And I sent him a message and I was like, really? And he emailed me back. He's like, no joke. The wine is stunning. So that was really pretty cool. I, I, I got to go, I got to go out wine hunting and see if any more of those bottles remain because I don't know, that would just be pretty special. That to would find. Be, see if you can go back and find that, that one. It's that fine. would be pretty awesome to find some of those, those older, those older wines. Um, you know, it's just to be really, you know, I think even all of these wines that we're talking about tonight, these four wines, like they all have ageability. I mean, I would say at the very minimum, you know, five years, I think even the, the Cabernet Franc, it's definitely, that's more kind of like, you know, fruit forward, fresh, um, kind of not even everyday wine because the wine had just as much interest as all of these other ones. But I think it definitely is probably the, the one that you would want to consume out of all of these wines, uh, the youngest, but they just all have this incredible future to them. Like you can really see that. It's pretty cool. So I want to, to, to talk a little bit about your involvement with wine education at Cork Buzz. And ju- just to sort of close out uh, on Kevin's moderating of the seminar, you know, we talked about how he kept everyone engaged in this, I hate to use the word effortless because it's not, it does take effort. And, and I think that he's able to do that because of talents and experience really. Um, and also this, this is really the first time I'd ever seen him do an entire seminar on New York wines. I've met him once and chatted with him and he was kind enough to, to email me his original wine list from the canal house which was up here, I want to say, in the Catskills, like in the Woodstock area. And I forwarded it to you. I don't know if you had a chance to I look did. at it. But it, it's just such an amazing example to me of how to use New York wines in a restaurant. Because nowadays, going back over the last 10 years, I mean, there was definitely a time when sommeliers in New York City who are you know very much interested in the whole world of wine didn't pay that much attention to New York wines. And if they did, they had like one token wine. And that always looked so awful on a wine list. It's like you look at like a gigantic page of like, you know, California, and then you get to like this little section that says New York and there's like one wine. And it, and it just looked so I would bad. Say more and often it's usually grouped into like that kind of like Accessory, yeah, other. like the other, like the the ancillary accessory category of wines that were like, you know, somebody somebody forgot after a tasting what the bottle was an open type of thing. <laughs> well, and it's just like I'm at a point where I'm like, just don't even have it. Just don't. If you're just going to have one, don't even have one. Like, invest the time, understand how to present these wines, and don't use an excuse that there's not enough good ones or that that you just can't figure out how to do it because Kevin's Rayleigh's been doing it since the seventies. <laughs> like that wine list is amazing. It's an entire page of, of, of like cool stuff that was available back then, mostly from hybrid grapes, but like some Chardonnay, some Riesling from Constantine Frank, and then a lot of Baco Noir and Sable Blanc and stuff from, from both the Hudson Valley and the Finger Lakes. And a winery I'd never heard of, from like was it Rockland County or Orange County? I don't have the list in front of me now, but 
so that would be down here in the Hudson Valley. But it's just handwritten, such a beautiful presentation. And I just I love having that to to use in I did a I did a seminar at the at the oh my gosh, this is one of the last things I did before like we went into lockdown at the Javits Center earlier this year at the restaurant show. And the seminar was how to present New York wines on your wine list effectively. And I used Kevin's list as an example. And it was just just so smart and 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 you know uh, amazing how just sort of ahead of his time that that he was. So we're so lucky that that he's that he's uh you know willing to do these seminars and just you know be reachable over email and things like that. So uh I I, I hope to to spend some more time with him soon. But okay, let's talk about you and your uh, involvement at CorkBuzz in terms of wine education. So wine education as a job, is it is it possible to make a living, would you say, for you know an average person in the industry? Can you go after like just wine education, or is it more of a side hustle still, would you say? I, I mean, it, it's definitely a side hustle, but I'll ask, but I'll also, the same way that I answer every question, we're going we're gonna to take a little detour. So you know, one of the things that really first attracted me to wine was the fact that, um, you know, and at the time I probably didn't realize that it was out of necessity, but one of the first things that kind of attracted me to really working in wine was, you know, I mean, one, it was an intersection of so many things that I already loved that, you know, I worked in the hospitality for, I mean, since I've worked in hospitality since I was 13 years old, my, my aunt owned a deli and I started working for her at a very young age um, in a small restaurant. I love to travel. I love culture. I, I like to drink. You know, I love food. It was like this great cross section. And um, when I first started thinking about learning more about wine, when I really moved to New York, when I really started, I thought, you know, I lived on the West Coast and I was like, I know, I know about wine. And then I started realizing like, wow, I don't know anything about European wine. I don't know, you know, I traveled in, in Italy and I, when I was younger and just kind of like, drink whatever was the least expensive, you know, and I've kind of gotten to this, this world of wine. And it was this very organic extension of all of these things that I really love. But I was so impressed when I first started studying wine that I would look at uh, all of these role models that I still really look up to, especially women. And, you know, it's like they did so many cool things. I'm like, wow, they're not only are they an educator, a great teacher, but they're also the ambassador for this particular region and some part of the world, you know, and then they also write the wine list for this particular place. And at the time, that was inspiring to me because I'm like, oh, it's so interesting. Like, how boring is it to do the same thing every day, right? And that's kind of like something about the pandemic. It's like there's a lot of hardship in just trying whatever works, but it's also there's a little bit of excitement in and being like, okay, like, how can you make this work? How can we still reach people? How can we do something that's, um, you know, both lucrative, but also fulfilling for us and for the people that we're doing it for, right? And so I think the, the thing about education is, you know, it's, it's a lot of work for not a lot of money. I will definitely, I will definitely say that when it comes to education. Um, but there's a lot of reward in learning how to definitely reach people in different ways. Uh, you have to you have to be adaptable in education. It's it's always reading the room, reading the student, just as much as it is, you know, when you're on the floor reading the table, um, finding out where their level of not even just education, but also where their level of interest lies, right? 
and what field of wine it actually lies in. Some people are interested in history. Some people are only interested in the tasting or the flavors. Um, it's so fascinating. So the long answer to your short question is, I think it's really hard to have a career in just wine education. Um, although, of, of course, we certainly see a lot of um, outstanding wine educators who have done just that. Um, but I also think that a lot of people are interested in doing more than just that. Not that education is, you know, just education, but I think that um, one of the things about an interest in wine is like people that love wine and love the academia of wine are the type of people that would never be satisfied knowing everything about a particular subject, right? Because with wine, it's impossible. Like you, it's, it's like I said before, it's so much about learning to to manage the knowledge and manage how you share that knowledge than it really is about knowing every little thing about wine, right? It's just impossible. And, and also the exciting part about it is it changes every year. And a famous winery changes the winemaker, right? Or the types of wines that they make. Um, <laughs> that's my that's my long-winded answer. What do you think about that? I mean, I, I think that you're right. Most... Uh... Like you mentioned, there are some people who I, I, I guess, call themselves full-time wine educators, but those positions are tough to get. And also, yes, most people who really enjoy wine education probably do also want to work the floor or want to work you know, in sales or, or whatever, um, such that they're tasting and engaging with wine in different ways. So... We have a lot of peers in the restaurant and wine industry right now that are unfortunately unemployed. You are someone who has managed to stay employed throughout the entire pandemic. So for aspiring sommeliers, wine educators, what does it take to become Amber Rill? How do they go after a job like yours at a cork buzz. Okay, so everything starts on May 4th, 1982. Um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it, that, that's kind of a hard question. I, I was in, uh, you know... Is that your yeah, birthday? Yeah, it is. Oh, I'm also in 82. <laughs> Excellent. Cool. Um, so, you know, it's really kind of funny. Um, you know, I, I can't really give myself that that credit for being employed because it was um you know it was really my employer Laura Fiavanti who uh really wanted to do what she could to keep as many people employed as she could um during this so that you know a lot of that just her kind of tireless tireless fight for her businesses um but i think you know it, it's so much about uh, i guess adaptability um, it's so much about, you know, kind of like that fight to do whatever. And then I also think it's really about, um, you know, always kind of pushing yourself to, to do and, and be better, um, pushing yourself to, it's like, we're in the hospitality industry, like hospitality didn't stop because COVID started. Right. Um, how do you make people feel comfortable? How do you make them happy? How do you make them engaged and interested and and how do you fulfill an, a, a need or a desire that you see in people to during this time 
um, be engaged in whatever it is. You know, it doesn't have to be wine tasting or, or wine education, but uh, we're just as people that just love hospitality. It's just we're thinking about how we can continue to engage people. And then, you know, it's with a lot of kind of trial and error. And we tried a lot of different things with, um, you know, reaching out to people, trying to sell retail wine, setting up a retail wine shop in Union Square. You know, that didn't really pan out. But it just, you know, every day you go in and you you try everything to see what works. And I think, you know, one of the things I've always sort of noticed, too, is like I, I think of this with all entrepreneurs is um, I'm always, you know, it must be so scary for an entrepreneur. And obviously, that's not what I'm, not what I'm doing here. But it must be so scary when you put so much effort into something, and you have to let it go. But when I see these stories of, of anybody that um, has long standing success, none of them were successful the first time, right? And I think one of the things I constantly see with successful people is that they take risk, they put themselves on the line, they be as fearless as they can and they understand when it's time to let something go even if you put so much time or so much effort into it and and focus on the next thing and that's I think that's something really hard as human beings you know if you put time and effort into anything you want to keep it so um that's a, it's a kind of a hard question because you know it's not really it's not really all about me it's really more about the the people that I'm surrounded with and the situation that I found myself in. Um, but here we are today. But so how, so how did you, how did you find yourself there? Did you go after it because you wanted to work with Laura at Cork Buzz or did you just see that they were hiring? What was your, so, your so entrance I was like? working. So I had just come back from um, working with our friend Rian. Um, I had been in, uh, Europe for four months working harvest and prior to that time I'd spent about a year in New York um, a year in New York really beginning to learn about wine and I left I went I worked harvest for uh, two months in the Rheingau I traveled around Europe um, visited some other regions and when I came back I started working I was like really like okay well, I've never really worked in fine dining I've been in service forever and I started working for a Flintstone restaurant uh, called Bettany on 57th and that was just as such an intense experience. And um, I don't know that I look back very fondly on my time there, which was not that long, it was about four months. But I will say that, um, you know, I, I left there in 2015, CorkBuzz was hiring. Essentially, I, I went for an interview with the person who was the general manager at the time, Tracy, and she didn't actually offer me a trail. I just told her when I would come in and do it. So we were sitting in the interview and she's like, well, the next step would be like, we would invite you in for a trail. And my response was, that's great. I'm available Thursday from six to eight. I'll see you then. <laughs> she would just, okay. she would just, so, so, I mean, she was kind of like speechless for a moment. And she said, okay, <laughs> we'll see you then. So whether I'm sure if she wasn't going to invite me for that interview, she would have been like, okay, well, we'll call you. That guy's not good for us. We'll call you. Right. So, um, but I really kind of, I, I would, you know, really wanted to be in an atmosphere. Well, you know, and I had applied, I had uh, interviewed with Paul like the year prior um, at Hearth for Terroir on the Porch, but then end up getting a job with them and kind of, you know, floated around through a few different restaurants in New York. I actually worked at this kosher Jewish dairy restaurant on the Upper West Side for the first year where I made 
a ridiculous amount of money, but had no exposure to really working with wine. So um, it was kind of just going around until I found the right fit. Um, and so 2015, in the spring of 2015, I joined CorkBuzz. Um, and it's, you know, kind of crazy to think that I've been with CorkBuzz for so long. Um, but, you know, I really have a, a support team there and uh, a boss that never really tells me no. Um, so, I, I, you know, I really have kind of instigated a lot of programs at CorkBuzz with um, things that we've done with uh, staff training and and. B2G with Ryan, of course. Ryan's our main beverage director, so he's just absolutely incredible in everything that he does. You know him well. Um, but I also, you know, had us uh, become an approved, um, an APP for the Wine Scholar Guild, started teaching Wine Scholar Guild classes. I was involved in the creation of uh, multiple private labels for Cork Buzz. So we do both uh, Riesling and a Pinot Noir with a winery that I also worked with in Oregon. So, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, I guess at the end of the day, maybe it's just about the hustle. But then I complain all the time about how tired I am. But you know, I think it's at the end of the day, it's, it's really something that I'm, I'm proud proud of to be a part of. Um, so many interesting and exciting things. Well, I like that you, you know, point out the hustle because I, I say this a lot, but I, I hear often people say, where am I going to work, you know, in the restaurant industry or the wine industry? And I, I just, I want to say to every single one of those people, it, it's not, where are you going to work? It's where do you want to work? You know, you, you, I think you really have to know. And when you know it's much easier to go after it. Maybe it's not so easy to know, but at least I think we probably agree that knowing where you want to work is a really great first step to then being able to go after it. And, and also about knowing, you know, like I said, with the, you know, this other restaurant that I was working at, like with, you know, great Midland Stud place, but knowing that at that time it wasn't the right fit for me. Um, if I'd held on there, maybe it would have become that in the future. But, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of make that decision in New York. It was really hard for me to be like, wow, I've only worked here for four months. Like, not really great on a resume in New York City. Like, I really kind of need this. But, um, you know, kind of making that decision to let that go and, and do something else. So I think that's important. And I think, too, there's, there's so many jobs um, in wine. It doesn't have to be education. It doesn't have to be floor sales. It doesn't have to be retail. Um, there's so many creative outlets in wine. I mean, you should be the one talking about this. You created your own position, really, or the cre- position was really opened up for you with the New York Wine and Grape Foundation, right? So, I mean, you had an opportunity to say, to to take a position that had not been created before you and and make that what it was, which is also a pretty awesome thing. <laughs> I mean, it is. it is another you know, avenue in the industry, these, the sort of wines of organizations that uh, I think, uh, I think our our peers should, should also think about um, when they're going after that next job. Okay. Well, I, I, I think that you summed that up so eloquently and that I should probably let you go spend Christmas with uh, your partner. (laughs) Well, thank you. This has been uh, so much fun. I just, Thank you for just letting me go off on every single tangent that I could possibly want to. Um, I'll think of like another 20 after this and I'll, I'll shoot you a text. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank, thank, thank you for hanging out with me on 
Christmas Eve, and uh, once uh, once we're once our uh, it's our turn for that for that vaccine, I, I very much look forward to seeing you and giving you a hug and and seeing everyone else and and coming back into absolutely. Corpus. Thank you so much. Thank you again to Amber Rill, Assistant Beverage Director at Cork Buzz in New York City. And as always, thank you to Dave Miller for opening and closing music. This is probably going to be the last podcast of the year. I think in total between Instagram Live and podcasts, I did 10. So I'm going to pat myself on the back and maybe go have a nice call. Amber. Merry Christmas. Hope to see you very soon.